Okay, well, it's absolutely lovely to see everybody here. Very warm welcome to you all to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. Um, it's a very great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this evening, who is Helga Varden, the, uh, who's Professor of Philosophy and of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, Helga works on Kant's practical philosophy, on legal political philosophy, on feminist philosophy, and the philosophy of sex and love. She's the author of Sex, Love and Gender, a Kantian theory, alongside many, many articles in her areas of expertise, and is currently working on a second mon monograph on Kant's transformation of the social contract tradition. And excitingly, her talk this evening looks both backwards towards the first monograph on sex, love and gender and forwards towards the transformation of the social contract tradition book. Um, and its title is Kant and Arendt on barbaric and totalitarian evil. So it's a great pleasure to hand over to Helga for this evening's talk. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Bill, and thank you very much, Aristotelian Society, for having invited me. Thank you to the audience. Thank for all of you for coming here at the various in the various time zones that you are. Um, thank you also to, of course, all my old colleagues and friends who are here today. Um, as one of my favorite Norwegian singers would say, um, if I were to say it in philosophy language. Um, every good part of my being uh, you have touched. So thank you very much. And so insofar as this talk goes well and you like the ideas, um, thank you for having been part of enabling them. Okay, so uh, as Bill was saying, uh, this paper is in many ways um, one step on the trans uh, transition from my first book on sex, love and gender and to what hopefully becomes my second book on trans um, transforming the social contract tradition. And um, in a very, very broad stroke, the sex, love and gender focuses quite specifically on issues re related to sexuality, uh, especially LGBTQIA plus lives, uh, women um, and women, and not so much on very many of the other challenges we are inheriting at the moment, specifically um, issues regarding oppression, violence that involve various types of um, minorities, including racialized, religious, and so on and so forth. So as I was finishing Sex, Love and Gender, there were certain features of the theory that I was puzzling about and thinking I need or would like to develop to be able to um, develop a Kantian theory that takes our complicated and difficult histories on in a more complex way. And one way to say some of, some of those features on the one hand, I wanted to see if I could use this new interpretation I had of Kant's theory of human nature that I developed in um, sex, love, and gender. So it's a very unorthodox Kant interpretation 
of human nature. So if I could use it as also as I'm going to try and envision how to transform our social contracts more broadly. Um, and then also I wanted to keep developing this idea that actually looks much further back than sex, love and gender, but to a very old paper I wrote on lying to the murderer at the door, so the classic issue. In the sex, love and gender, I developed that complexity somewhat by being much clearer on engaging Kant's idea or distinction between formal and material wrongdoing. And uh, I, I keep wanting to develop that also as I now try and broaden the scope. Um, another idea in, that's there now in sex, love and gender, which I think is going to be absolutely essential if the next book is going to do the right kinds of things, is that I argue that we should give up in important ways when we do political theory. We should give up the distinction between either we are in the state of nature or we are in civil society. So I argue that you cannot understand um, lives or aspects of our lives, um, especially insofar as they involve oppression and violence against inherited identities, if you stay limited by the philosophical commitment that either we're in a state of nature or we're in civil society. So these ideas uh, are part of what is informing this paper that many of you may have read um, the draft of. And uh, much of what I'm gonna talk about today has to do with how I'm trying to develop um, those ideas further. Another puzzle, which was somewhat independent of that, um, but it is going to be important in a more, um, as I, I keep working on these ideas, which is a puzzle that actually arose as I was teaching Kant yet again, his doctrine of right, because he has this, um, these four conditions, legal political conditions that are called anarchy, despotism, barbarism, and the Republic, and I'm gonna come back to all of these details in a bit. Um, uh, the part of the puzzle is, as you will see shortly, that um, Mary Gregor translated um, the German uh, Gewalt as force. As many of you may know, um, Arthur Ripstein's book is famously called Force and Freedom. I've learned much of what I know. Um, about Kant's legal and political philosophy from Arthur. And um, in particular, I started to get increasingly bothered about like, uh, what is it about this Gewalt? Um, what is it about this, or rather, what is it about the force I was teaching in English? What is it about this, the nature of this force that is constitutive of truly horrible conditions, according to Kant? And so uh, Gregor translated Gewalt as force, and uh, Gewalt is very poorly translated as force. It's much better translated as violence. And so some of it has to do with starting to engage this more seriously. Like what, when you take quite seriously how part of the problem of truly horrific uh, situations we may find ourselves in is not just a problem of force, but of violence. That is that this force is directed at other human beings in specific ways. Uh, how can we try and capture that? So these were the puzzles in many ways. Um, 
Though you could also perhaps say that just like with Sex, Love and Gender, this new book uh, is trying to take part in this project that we might be calling with Charles Mills um, to occupy liberalism. Or if you want to say it with Hannah Arendt, how to be a good pariah or outcast in the academy. So when you speak to feminist issues, issues involving sexual or gender minorities, um, issues involving racism, um, issues involving religious oppression, and so on and so forth, you are also in, engaging not just in theoretical philosophy, but you are engaging your own tradition, a tradition that in some parts uh, have not been uh, concerned with these issues traditionally. In um, Hannah Arendt in her totalitarianism book says that it's always very tempting uh, when you're being allowed in to academia and you're representing a group that traditionally has not been permitted there to be a good, whatever it is, your identity, a good Jew, a good woman, a good gay, and so on and so forth. And in fact, some of the incentive there is not just in what you focus on and publish on um, to be a good, good gay or good Jew, um, but also that, um, that you view yourself as one of them. In so writing a book like Sex, Love and Gender is trying to show one way um, to be aware in how you write um, that in many ways it's important that you write and engage the tradition you are inheriting in such a way that it can uh, empower those who are excluded. So that you don't necessarily engage in the fame and traditions conflicts or that you um, try and strive towards writing in a way that can be empowering um, for all those who are not given access to academia. Um, and that involves certain choices. Um, both with regard to which topics, but also, of course, all the, the various games of academia, how to cite, who you cite, and uh, who you give voice to in your writings. And as you may see then, uh, trying to figure out how to do this, also when I try to broaden um, the discussion to no longer being just about sex and gender, um, is enormously important to me. Um, so if I sum up this paper without just having talked about the content, which I will give you in a short little moment, we'll have a combination of these things um, going on. And so if you, uh, well, it has, in other words, a good bit of Kant and errant interpretation. Um, and it's not in the spirit of how to convince Kantians and Arendtians as such, though I hope to give them solid uh, things to engage too. But more in the spirit that both um, Hannah Arendt and Kant encourage, namely in Hannah Arendt, that 
part of what how you can see how well good your philosophy is, or an important source to see how good it is, is to see what people can do with it. Or in Kant's very famous Apera Auda, that is, have courage to use your own understanding. So this, this paper that uh, you have read or that you can read if you want to, and that I'm going to tell you about, is trying to avoid steep interpretive traditions and instead just trying to go for the issues. And trying also then to take up where I see some of what is fantastic about what Hannah Arendt and Kant has left us behind as we're trying to transform what we are inheriting, both societies and philosophy and the traditional philosophy um, in, in ways that may be productive. And at the same time as doing that, as trying to choose the examples well, and to give voice in this text to those who talked about racism or sexism and oppressive lives, including right now, um, but also before these groups were allowed into academia to give them voice in the text. So a voice that should have been there always, of course, but which wasn't. And to try and use philosophy, to try and bring out uh, in philosophy, uh, also some of what their insights might be. So is the aim. So if you look then at the, for those of you who have the paper, you can see this combination of uh, things in the paper. By the first section, which I will turn to in a very short moment, being Kant on barbarism. So it's, it's a lot of interpretation, but hopefully not too technical, but it's uh, an engagement with Kant's ideas um, of various uh, legal and political conditions we can find ourselves, as well as proposal for how to move from these ideas, which he calls ideas of reason, to analyzing actual historical societies. Then I move to what is called here barbarism inherent uh, self-deception and number effect of, on human beings. So I'm going to suggest to you today that barbarism, what it shares um, in all its forms, is that it doesn't as such try to enslave when these forces are at stake um, or are operating. Uh, they are not just trying to enslave or kill as such, rather they are trying to uh, numb human beings. And so they're trying to create conditions, either localized or more generally, under which some groups are subjected to conditions in which anything but living death um, raises the risk of attracting violence. Then in the second part, which I also believe I will have time to talk about, I'm going to move from Kant on barbarism to developing this full account of barbarism, um, which will not only uh, appeal to Kant's account of barbarism, which I will call pure barbarism, and then I'm going to add a distinction between what we can call uh, passive barbarism and active barbarism. So I'm going to move from that, and so from Kant's own examples too, of barbarism, to um, what we with an Aaron can call totalitarian barbarism. And I'm going to argue that, that we can see them, um, those types of forces too, as being both of a passive and active form. So at the end, I hope to give you um, some reasons to think that this 
then ultimately fourfold distinction between pure and totalitarian barbarism, and that each of them can come in passive and active forms, can give us some tools with which to capture um, uh, various ways in which legal political regimes can go horribly wrong. And I'm going to also try and suggest to you that when, we, as we are looking for that, we are not necessarily looking for the entire system to go horribly wrong. It is absolutely the case that in many historical societies, what you have is pockets of barbarism of various sorts. So again, we're not either in the state of nature or in civil society. We can be in many regards, for example, in civil society and have pockets of barbarism existing in that society. Okay, good. So um, now we're then uh, Canton barbarism. So Kant suggests to us, and I'll put a little bit of that into the chat, if I can make the chat function properly. That was not so easy because I can't um, send it to everyone, but hopefully uh, Nikhil can do that for me, copy and paste it for everyone. Okay, so Kant suggests that all legal political conditions can be seen as a combination. Now you have it in the chat, so you can follow along there if you like. So Kant suggests to us when we look at legal political conditions, we, we can identify very central features of them by looking at how three principles are combined, namely violence or Gewalt, in German, law, Gesetz, and freedom of Freiheit. And so he suggests that if we see this, the ways in which these three principles can com be combined, we can distinguish between what he calls four ideas of reason. Of, there are four ways in which they can be combined. And so you can think of them as yielding a different type of condition. The first is anarchy, which has only law and freedom in it, those two principles, and no violence. So anarchy then is, a, according to Kant, is a condition in which we interact as free people and we follow certain laws, there's certain rules for how to, to interact. And these rules are themselves enabling freedom among us. What is not present at all is violence. Um, so in some sense, it's a very peaceful condition and is ultimately what Kant calls could be a condition devoid of uh, injustice. It's also in void of, devoid of justice. Um, it's just the peaceful conditions where everybody happens to agree on everything, and they're following certain ways of solving various problems, and there's no controversy. Despotism, in contrast, he argues, is a condition in which you have law and violence, but no freedom. So in a uh, despotic condition, um, there will be violence targeting those who don't follow the law, but the problem is that the law is not ultimately enabling a condition of freedom. Typically, it's enabling a certain way of life, say, a conception of happiness, as could be captured in a religion, for example. The third one is Republic, which for Kant is what we should always strive to realize, which is a condition under which you have law, freedom, and violence, but the way in which these ten, three are combined is such that if nobody does anything wrong, all you have is rightful 
coercion. Um, that is spun in German. So coercion such that don't break these laws or get in trouble. But if everybody is not, uh, nobody is breaking these laws, you have a condition under which everybody can interact as free and subject to laws uh, that exactly are founded on their right to be free. So that's the ideal for Kant. Barbarism then, which will be the focus now and for the remainder of this talk ultimately, is a condition of pure violence. And so there is no law and no freedom in the uh, barbaric condition. And so for Kant, it is then ultimately the horrible place or the worst case scenario is barbarism. Now, these four ideas are ideas of reason for Kant, meaning that we can um, imagine them using certain principles and combining them in specific ways, and they, they give us these ideas. And so it also, that also means, though, that they are not descriptions of historical societies. And as I, I hinted in the more introductory remarks, Part of what I try to argue in the first book is in our historical societies, we find ourselves or we can find aspects of our lives as subject to a mix of these forces. Some of the forces um, are Republican, that is, they are ultimately justifiable. They enable us to live together with others as free and equal. Some could be despotic. Um, in the paper, for example, I give an example of if you only have, can have a holiday on certain specific religious holidays, say two, um, that's despotic. Um, or you can also find yourself subjected to barbaric laws, in, um, for example, such as the sodomy law, which is the case that if you act in certain ways, violence will come, come at you and you have to hide it. Finally, too, of course, some aspects of your life can be ultimately described as anarchy or anarchic, which means that, which often is useful to capture, for example, how some aspects of your life uh, involves living in a somewhat peaceful, outcast society. So, insofar as it makes sense to call Jewish ghettos in early uh, uh, modernity in Europe, um, peaceful, such as where Hannah Arendt grew up. It could you could use anarchy to capture that, or you can use it to capture peaceful LGBTQIA communities and so on and so forth. That is internal to these communities. Then there is uh, because they are not given access to law on an equal footing with others you create a community where the aim is to live together peacefully. And they are often characterized by much tolerance, much welcoming, caring community. Um, but it is also the case that that is in part um, expressing that you are, um, you're being excluded from full access to civil society. These outcast societies can also be somewhat despotic, of course, insofar as what is okay and not okay internal to the outcast society um, will be determined by the most more powerful social voices. Okay.
if we just have these, and I'm moving a little bit ahead now, so we make it at least once uh, to, um, um, to a first place where we can also end, to make sure I end on time. If you look at Cardone examples of barbarism, they are famously women kept in sexualized kennels or women who commit infanticide to avoid, to protect themselves against society, soldiers who en uh, engage in uh, lethal duels uh, to protect their honor. And uh, you could perhaps read some of his comments on um, the barbaric nature of societies that don't recognize uh, um, marital rape as an example of barbarism in Kant. I, I suggest to you, and it will become clearer in a little bit, hopefully, that these kinds of barbarism are um, what I call pure barbarism in that uh, what they basically involve, and is also passive form, uh, in that uh, they involve legal political institution permitting uh, some groups to do bad things to other groups without legal consequence. And so it's basically the way in which legal political institutions create these uh, pockets in which people are not protected in various ways, are so not giving full access or are excluded, um, that is constitutive of the barbarism involved. They're not active, I think, Kant's example, because they don't involve the legal political institutions actually using the legal political institution to go after these individuals. So a way to think of it turning from passive to active uh, would be, say, not just having permitting marital rape legally, such as there is no such thing, but it could be a sodomy law. So a sodomy law would involve targeting specific people um, who have done nothing wrong to, with regard to anyone else, not to promote anyone of their right, but it's targeting them and so making it unsafe for them. That's turning from passive to active. Um, but it's still, I think, pure. And we'll come back to a little bit more detail of why it's still not totalitarian. Before we do that, though, I want to take one, a few minutes to talk a little bit about section one, two in the paper, or more generally, about why I think that ultimately barbarism is not fundamentally about um, enslavement or enslaving others. It's really about numbing them. And why I think um, that in order to capture that, one way to do it is to go with an interpretation like uh, the one I have done with Kant on Kant's account of human nature. It's not the only way. I don't think uh, one has to be Kantian in this world to do good philosophy, but I think you need some of these distinctions if you want to capture the nature of barbaric violence. And so I'm going to spend a few minutes of just going through some features of this, uh, of Kant's account of human nature, both of the what he calls the predisposition to good and also the propensity to evil. Um, I hope uh, it won't be too technical, at least it's sort of possible to kind of follow along, even if you're not a Kantian for that matter, not a philosopher. And then I'm just going to use that to emphasize a little bit about what, why I think it's more useful to think of barbarism 
as involving trying to numb human beings, so all spontaneity ultimately in those subjected to it, rather than just to say kill someone or to um, enslave them. I think, by the way, that this is absolutely also consistent with how Hannah Arendt uh, analyzes concentration camps um, during the Second World War. It is insufficient to think of them as simply involving killing. It was rather uh, a way of creating conditions under which on the, of living death, which is that any sign of spontaneity would attract possible violence. Okay, so you can just think, if you look at Kant's account of human nature, which is not very commonly done in philosophy for various weird interpretive reasons. So it's a bit of history of philosophies, strangely that. But one reason probably indirectly is that you find this more the best sketched in his book on religion. And that book is one um, that many of us are not naturally drawn to, especially those of us who, like me, are pretty heathen. Um, we are not obviously starting to read Kant on on religion. But in it, you find his account of human nature or the more systematic presentation of it. And in it, there's a distinction between the predisposition to good and also the propensity to evil. And you're going to get the 10 minute version of this. So this is my most effective, efficient way of trying to tell the story. Kant thinks that the predisposition to good is a way in which it's a predisposition in us, which is that it is um, expressed in how we feel pleasures and pains. It is related to our embodied forcefulness, right? So the way in which we can feel um, powerful from our subjective point of view, right? So, and, uh, so it involves both what he calls a, a natural vital force, which is the, an embodied way of being, feel, experiencing self as embodied and forceful, and also a moral vital force, which he thinks ultimately is enabled by a capacity for reason. Kant thinks then that if we look at our being, one way to do this is to think that our being is trifold. So there's three aspects to the ways in which we feel pleasures and pains which you can distinguish between animality, humanity, and personality. Animality makes us into a living being, humanity to a rational being, and personality to a responsible being. Each level of these involve or require um, different, for that matter, kinds of minds, different abilities to be conscious, self-conscious beings, and different abilities to be, to think. And so if we do it in that sort of speed version, one quick way to see how this goes, um, though it does depend a little bit on Kantianese, I apologize for that, but still. If you look at a newborn baby, part of what you want your theory to be able to explain is that A, the baby is already able to do certain things that are puzzling philosophically. It will eat when it's hungry, and then it will stop eating when it's full. You can pick up a newborn baby and put it on your body, and it calms the baby. You touch the baby, we touch the baby, and it's pleasant to the baby. 
All of these things, the baby reveals that the baby distinguishes between pleasures and pains in a way in which you cannot make dependent on being able to do very complex things in terms of um, reasoning. Yes. Also, in a good account, I take it, you want to say that this, these abilities we have, we share with other animals. It's also true for other animals that they eat when they're full and then they stop. And then it's pleasant for them to be held. Um, and they're sensitive to touch. In slightly technical language, I take it that for Kant, developing this ability um, does not require reflective self-consciousness and abstract concepts. So you can develop this ability with associative thinking like other animals do. Um, and of course, we do a lot of that too when we are newborn. We associate certain smells with pleasure and sounds with pleasure. And so they make us content or happy um, and others with pain. Importantly though, it's in a certain sense for Kant already that um, it is already there as a predisposition in us in the way in which we are oriented. Kant thinks that, uh, or his proposal is that the vi the way in which it works is that the vital force, when it is in harmony with, um, I'll give you some technical Kantianese now. So the vital force is our embodied forcefulness. And then we use the relational ca categories of the understanding teleologically when we are developing an ability to be as a whole in the world. So for Kant, it's the relational uh, categories of the understanding we use and that are expressed in the ways in which we view ourselves as whole as when we rest in somebody's body, we view uh, its causality that is actually in the principle of causality that is informing the sex drive. Um, so the first one is community. The second is uh, causality. And the third one, sorry, I'm thinking about something slightly different now. So losing my thread a little bit. Um, oh, well, I'll come back to it in a second. Importantly, it's how we develop these things. Uh, are not depending on us being able to think about what we're doing, that I am doing it or use abstract concepts. So it's already there. Now, Kant also thinks it's important as newborn that even if you accept everything I've said so far, it is very strange that human beings are the first one who cry when they are born, uh, who scream when they are born. That is that it is frustrating for them to be in the world to not be able to act. And so Kant thinks that already when you look at human babies and non-human babies, so anim but animals, you can see that the human babies will scream. And he thinks that it reveals that they experience the inability to act freely as frustrating. And with time, he thinks that it is that ability to be frustrated by not being able to act to set ends of your own, that goes into the story of how we develop what becomes the next aspect of uh, our predisposition to good, namely humanity. So Kant thinks that humanity is in part characterized by an ability to set and pursue ends of your own, 
namely increasingly to be able to describe what you're doing, think about what you're doing, and then choose what to do, which makes you into a rational being. He also thinks that humanity, importantly, is related to the ability to uh, relate to yourself as seen by others. So at some point quite early on in human development, you see um, babies starting to be able to respond to others' smile with the smile, the first smile. And so this is a way in which Kant engages Rousseau's idea of our social sense of self, but presenting it as something originally experienced us as, by us as good. Okay, so we have, um, we experience ourselves as good, seen by others and as good as pleasure. It gives us pleasure, so we smile. Um, and together, these two parts, namely the ability to set and pursue ends of our own, and the ability to relate to, uh, to be a being that has a social sense of self becomes constitutive of our humanity. So distinguishes us ultimately from other animals. Finally, Kant thinks that once we learn, and this is the story we all know from the groundwork, once we learn to think about with abstract concepts what we want to do, right? And I can think that I am the one who wants to do this thing. Then it becomes it starts to open up the possibility that ultimately I can do something because it's the right thing to do. So he thinks, you know, famously, that to be able to, uh, to be capable of moral responsibility involves an ability to act on universalizable maxims from the point of view of, re, uh, uh, from the motivation of duty, to do something just because it's the right thing to do. So for Kant then, Human beings are not just like animals, even though we share very important features with them, but part of what distinguishes us from them is then humanity and what he calls personality. Namely, we're not only living beings, but we are beings capable of rational being, and we're capable of moral responsibility. Now, in addition, this is the predisposition to good for Kant in human nature. In addition, he thinks we have a propensity to evil. And I think, um, so one way to say it is like this. If you think of the predisposition to good to being central, to explain what if you are after, uh, if you're violent in attacking someone, you can see the ways in which you attack various aspects of our predisposition. For example, uh, a quick example, uh, much violence against uh, racist violence or homophobic violence ultimately uh, um, is aimed at attacking our animality. So on the one hand, we are if you have that identity, you're often described as more animalistic, but at the same time also that an, being an animal is a bad thing. And the violence is increasingly tied, try to attack your animality. And one reason why it is so effective is if it attacks your animality is because in part, your animality involves also only reflexive consciousness for those of you who can do that. Meaning it is in our very basic distinctions between pleasures and pain. And it's related to our, um, our desire to survive or self-preservation. There it came, the last one. 
uh, of our animalistic drives, namely self-preservation. And so if one is attacked with violence aimed at our animality, then there's a real way in which you can attack your basic sense of being safe in your own body and in the world. And when you are attacked in that way, the fact that you can reflect upon it, including with concepts enabled by humanity and personality, is not sufficient to get the damage under control often. And so it's a way to undermine you in a way in which, so to say, messes with you at such a basic level that it gives rise to possible so-called PTSD, for example. That is, when you experience another force coming in that place, it can push you to a kind of a survival mode where you are no longer able to just think rationally about what is going on. Now, leaving that for now, now just to, to explain some of that structure, why it's important to have that type of structure involved, because you want it to be the case that you can explain why extreme violence actually often attacks, say, our animality, and why it's so difficult to actually be able to control it after the damage is done. You want that in your theory. If we then move to the propensity to evil, which is Kant's account of how come, given that this is a predisposition in us, so it's something already in us, why is it the case that we don't so often don't act in that way? What is the, what is the so to say, the, the vulnerabilities we have that makes it the case, and what is the structure of when we are losing our way and doing bad things? Um, how can we explain that? Now, Kant's concept for that is the propensity to evil. And he thinks that the propensity to evil, it may be useful to think of a tendency to do bad thing by dividing it into three parts, namely what he calls frailty, impurity, and um, depravity. Frailty basically means, uh, easy way to say this, tradi more traditional weakness of will. I know what I should do and then I don't do it. I can do it in self-deceived and non-self-deceived ways. Impurity is one level up from that and is more serious, which means that I can't, I have unreliable motivations for what I do. So whether I do the right or the wrong thing is fundamentally somewhat unstable in me. And it can also be self-deceived or non-self-deceived. The last level is depravity, which can't, uh, for Kant, this is the one I want, uh, the one internally linked to barbarism there. It is always self-deceived, which means, Kant suggests, that when we do truly bad things, and not just um, we did an instance of it, not that we have a liability to do it, but we actually are orienting an entire life, one entire part of our being, in a way that is fundamentally bad, we always do it in self-deceived ways. In other words, Kant thinks we are not capable of what he calls a diabolical will, meaning that we cannot will to be, so to say, pure bad spirits of sorts. And so because we don't have those minds, we have human minds that are fundamentally structured by practical reason. When we are losing our way in life, increasingly in these ways, leading to barbarism, we will increasingly use moralized language. We will increasingly need to describe others as not fully human, 
because otherwise we cannot actually bring ourselves around to do what we do. But some of the complexity when we do that is also that we increasingly think of ourselves as moral heroes or good people when we do horrible things. And I think barbarism is uh, including how people talk when they start engaging in barbaric behavior has that feature. Last little note before I'm gonna move on to the last section of totalitarian um, um, barbarism. Just one note to say, so why is it that we have that liability to lose our way? In important ways, Kant suggests, like Rousseau, that it has to do with this aspect that I called humanity, which, as you remember, has a combination between a social sense of self and rational end setting. In particular, like Rousseau, or he takes from Rousseau, it is our social sense of self that is so um, unruly for human beings. So as you know, Rousseau's wanderer is happy, and then he lists start living in society, and then true evil opens. Kant thinks yes. So the thing about the social sense of self or amour propre is that I can feel good and bad, um, and I can actually live my life in that way, dependent on how others do. And it enabled me to destroy being and feel empowered by destroying being. And so Kant thinks, following Rousseau, that, and we could never get rid of this, he thinks like Rousseau, that it is an anxious aspect of us that is triggered by when we compare ourselves to others. And this anxiety that we naturally have, if we let it unfold, then it in, involves wanting to dominate others because dominating others makes us feel as if we are, have power. And so barbarism then involves such anxiety to make yourself both feel that you are empowered or important um, even without doing anything and also even more empowered when you're actually destroying things. But you can only do it if you don't describe it in that way. You can only do it if you are actually describing yourself as doing something great and wonderful or important. If we combine this now with Kant's earlier thoughts or the earlier thoughts on barbarism, um, and we use it to develop it, then I think we can get the following scheme. And, and um, I'll try not to talk more than five minutes about this, and then we are roughly well on time. But I hope I've given you enough so you can engage it with me afterwards. So you remember that I said, I think all barbarism involves numbing. So it involves using the legal political institutions one way or another to enable either some groups to numb other groups without legal consequence. Um, or that would be passive pure barbarism 
or it can involve using, letting them use the legal political institutions to do it, such as in the sodomy law. All of those kinds of barbarism, as um, Batami Bawan says, you know, um, there's a sense in which they are light. They are the pure barbarism, which doesn't mean there's anything light about being subjected to those forces. Nevertheless, there's something different between that type of barbarism, the pure barbarism, where some groups numb other groups with or without the direct help of the legal political institutions, and totalitarian barbarism. And I think that totalitarian barbarism is different because of the way in which the institutions are used to create conditions where this numbing is totalizing in some way. So it's not no longer just the case that some groups are attacking or numbing other groups, but it is rather the case that the legal political institutions are setting a framework in which the numbing is somehow totalizing for their being. It's also the case that if these things are not stopped and if they become determining for how the whole system works, like they did in Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia or USSR, it actually is to use the legal political institutions to destroy themselves. I can't, it can't go on. I think though, that you can also see this coming in a, a passive and an active form. So totalizing barbarism. The passing form, uh, passive form, I think, is state organized terrorizing absence of law and freedom. And so it involves states um, refusing or stripping some people under its uh, um, coercive power from access to uh, law. So I believe that some historical cases that would fit such a description of, so to say, using the legal political institutions to force people to stay in a part of the planet where they are not protected um, and they have nowhere safe to go would be examples like Norway's original constitution of 1814, according to which Jews and Jesuits were denied entrance to Norway. I think it would include Europe's treatment of the Roma people. Uh, I think it would include Nazi Germany stripping of, uh, of Jew Jewish people of their citizenship. I think it would include UK's Windrush scandal, where the Caribbean descent, people of Caribbean descent were denied a right to citizenship, even though they had lived there for a very long time. I believe it would be including European states uh, with regard to refugees after World War I. And I believe it would uh, include some European states right now who are denying stateless peoples, uh, um, refugees, a safe place to go. So I think that this is passive in that it involves using your legal political institutions to deny someone access and with nowhere safe to go. Um, and so uh, it is passive in that it fundamentally involves exclusion, but that exclusion subjects the people who are excluded to um, and, um, violent forces aimed at their destruction. 
The active form, uh, which is worse, involves using the state's legal political institution to terrorize uh, segments of the population. So rather than just excluding, it's actually using them to do the terrorizing. I believe that, and it can be either your own population or it can be population elsewhere in the world. So I believe that this could include European colonization, antebellum slavery in the US, Western country schools for indigenous children in the 20th century, apartheid South Africa, Nazi Germany's concentration camps of Jewish LGBT Roma people disabled, mental hospitalization of loose women and LGBTQ plus people in the history, current black mass incarceration in the US, use uh, separation, incarceration of refugees and immigrant children, European refugee camps in Southern Europe, some of Israelis' engagements on Palestinian territories, and China's re-education camps uh, for its Muslim populations. So I think this is not just passive, it is active, it's using this legal political institution to violate uh, segments of the population and in a totalizing way, meaning that there is no way to get away from it, the violence, because it's actually organized by the state. This is not also just like the passive one, there's nowhere to go, but it's also that the institutions themselves hold you that and then terrorize you. And I believe that if that becomes determining for the entire system, um, that brings the whole system into collapse. In, uh, I'm not going to talk much about the third section. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about the third section. In the third section, I try and speak about both, about how, you know, even when people have taken it on, and when you take this stuff on, that is active, totalizing barbarism, such as in World War II or Civil War, um, after it would be um, wrong to believe that the problem um, that gave rise to uh, totalizing barbarism is gone. And um, I think the barbarism, totalizing barbarism always historically comes after pure barbarism. And so when you look at the histories after say the civil rights, um, uh, civil war, well, after World War II, it was not the case that um, equal rights were wait, awaiting the people who were subjected to um, totalitarian barbarism. It rather became the case that they were typically pushed back into pure barbarism in pockets. So it's not the case that as soon as the World War II was over, um, LGBT, um, LGBTQIA plus communities were suddenly then also given rights or Roma people or the disabled. It was rather they were pushed back again to conditions of pockets of pure barbarism. But I will stop that because now we are out of time and I hope I've given you enough to engage with the ideas. Thank you very much.